Amen. A Pennsylvania homeowner named Jerry Lynn has given new meaning to the phrase false alarm. In 2004, Jerry went to hang a TV in his living room. To determine where to poke the hole in the wall for the wire, he lowered an alarm clock down through an upstairs air vent. He figured that he could hear the alarm in the wall and know where to punch his hole. But the alarm clock fell off the string that was holding it and became lost in the wall. And for the next 13 years, every evening at 6.50, the alarm clock went off. Jerry figured the batteries would only last a few months, but he was wrong. Here's what 6.50 sounds like every night at Jerry and Sylvia's house. Sylvia's wife says, it's not a bother, it's kind of cute. It starts a conversation when guests come over. Well, the Thessalonians were also victim of a false alarm. But there was nothing cute about their situation. A spiritual deception had threatened their faith. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul had written to this church about the rapture that Jesus is coming to airlift his church from planet earth before God's coming judgment. But it seems the Thessalonians had received another letter. False teachers had written in Paul's name. They were saying that Jesus had already returned for his church and the Christians in Thessaloniki had been left behind. Well, the believers were in a panic. And Paul writes this second letter to refute the false alarm and to straighten out the confusion that it had caused. Paul's hope is to restore their hope. Well, he begins in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's his customary greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. I've heard it said, a real friend warms you with his presence, trusts you with his secrets, and remembers you in his prayers. And if that's the case, then there's never been a better friend than the Apostle Paul. In all Paul's letters, he prays for the churches. Recall in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul had prayed for this church. May the Lord may make you increase and abound in love to one another. Well, now he thanks God for having answered his prayer. For he says in verse 3, Because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. The believers in Thessaloniki had a growing faith and an abounding love. God had answered Paul's prayer. Verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now remember, the Thessalonians were wartime babies. They had been born again in the midst of persecution. 
Acts 17 tells us about the mob in Thessalonica that arrested the leaders of the church and ran Paul out of town. And yet through it all, the Thessalonians had been faithful to the Lord. These were believers who were overcomers. So his brother Sam Sewell, I read his story recently, along with fellow missionary Hussein Lasker, the two men were sharing the gospel in the Indian village of Nagaland. The men were attacked by Muslim radicals. Hussein was murdered. Samsul was stabbed six times and left for dead. Yet after just one month in the hospital, Samsul returned to the village where he had been brutalized. He told a reporter why. As a Muslim convert, it's my heart's desire that my own people be one to Christ. After returning, Samsul prayed with 11 people to receive Christ and baptized them into the church. He said of Hussein, his friend's murder, as in history, the blood of the martyrs has become the seeds of the church. Today, 245 million Christians in places like India and Iran and North Africa live under the threat of physical persecution and harm. And I suggest if these believers can remain bold in their faith, then certainly we should be able to endure a little office alienation or a little social ridicule from time to time for our faith. We all need to take a stand. We need to stand tall. Even when we're made the butt of a joke, let's develop a strong, overcoming faith. Who knows when it might be tested? Well, notice Paul has commended the Thessalonians for their love, for their faith. But what about their hope? Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul spoke of their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Here, their faith and love are still intact, but between the writing of these two letters, something has happened to their hope. Their hope has been stolen from them. You know, sometimes it's not what's said, but not said that matters. And this is true in our text. What had happened to their hope? Well, we'll answer that question in chapter 2. But first, Paul continues to comfort this persecuted church, and he does so in a rather surprising way. He wows them with a description of Jesus' return to planet Earth. It's amazing. Paul encourages a church under attack with a picture of the Lord's attack against this world. Notice in verse 5, Paul refers to the enduring faith of these believers as manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What a heavy statement to make. The believers were manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Paul informs these Thessalonians, just a few weeks old in the Lord now, that when Jesus returns at the battle of Armageddon to crush Satan, to annihilate the armies of mankind, God is going to point to them, the Thessalonians, and to believers of all the ages. And he's going to say to a hostile world, there, I did this to you because of what you did to my children. You know, nothing angers God more than how the world mistreats his kids. All persecution will be one day punished. And Paul ensures the Thessalonians that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. For which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Notice that. 
It's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble His people. The evil world we live in thinks that they can oppose Christ. They can trash His church and there be no penalties. Not so. At the moment, Jesus commands us to turn the other cheek. But in the end, He returns not to turn His cheek, but to bust some chops. He'll repay the world's tribulation on us with great tribulation on them. In the end, God will trouble the wicked and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Now imagine your son goes out for the baseball team, the little league team. He's by far one of the better players. He's your boy after all. But because of little league politics... Did you know there's such a thing? Little league politics. Ah, little league politics. Because of it, another kid is starting in your son's place. An injustice has been done. And as a parent, you feel like it's your obligation to talk to the coach. And you plan to do so after the very next game. But in that game, your son gets to play. And he's terrible. In fact, it's his worst game ever. He strikes out every at-bat. He makes a couple of errors. Now, you said you were going to talk to the coach about your son not starting, and it might still be an injustice, but boy, your son's poor performance has just weakened your argument. What are you going to say? And this is why the faith of the Thessalonians and our faith is so strategic. Our endurance in the face of persecution is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Thus, we need to live worthy of the kingdom. But if we repay evil for evil, if we show hatred to our persecutors, if we don't respond with the grace and love that Christ has shown us, then one day the world who's going to be judged will say to God, why are you judging us when your people were no different? In other words, stoop to their level and we weaken God's argument. Paul calls us evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Be good evidence. At Jesus' second coming, justice will be restored Sin will be repaid. The righteous will be relieved. When the smoke clears on the battlefield and Jesus is the only one left standing, a sigh of relief will ascend from the saints. The wickedness of this world will have finally been punished. Righteousness will be rewarded. But if God is going to judge the wicked in the Lord's day, then we need to avoid their same sins in our day. And so verse 8 tells us, Jesus will come in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first time He came as a servant. The second time He comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who reject His gospel. Notice how men are judged in the last days. It all boils down to the gospel. What did they do with Jesus? Did they obey or reject the gospel of Christ? He says, People who reject the gospel shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
Everlasting destruction. Here's the essence of hell. It's eternal separation from the Lord. Understand, you can't live a life defiant of Jesus. You can't live your life running from Jesus and then expect to live with him for all eternity. Since you didn't like him and since you resisted his influence at every turn, eternity is designed to honor your choice forever. It's everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. For when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, Because our testimony among you was believed. Jesus is returning to be glorified where he was crucified. He's going to rule where he was once rejected. Even today, Jesus is mocked and ridiculed and his followers are treated with the same disdain. But on judgment day, Jesus will be admired by this wicked world. Then you and I, the church, will be unveiled as his greatest work, his masterpiece. Irony of ironies, the world will glorify Jesus in us, how the tables will turn. And thus Paul intercedes for the Thessalonians, verse 11. Therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness, and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God, In the Lord Jesus Christ. What a high calling we've been given. That Christ will one day be glorified in us for all the world to see. Let's begin to live our lives in light of that calling today. Chapter 2. Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. This was Paul's subject in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There he described an event called the rapture. That one day Jesus will come in the clouds and snatch away his bride. We talked about the rapture last time. Like a scene from Star Trek, Jesus is one day going to beam up his church. In the twinkling of an eye, our earthly bodies will be transformed into eternal bodies. Bods fit for God. How about that? And we'll be gathered together to Jesus in the heavens. Paul didn't leave the Thessalonians up in the air about the rapture. He carefully explained what was up with this important event. And yet confusion had occurred. False information had been disseminated. And in verse 2, Paul confronts it. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now this phrase, the day of Christ, is a synonym for the day of the Lord. This is how the New American Standard and newer translations render it, the day of the Lord. Now what happened to the Thessalonians' hope? From Paul's statement here in verse 2, we can infer that someone had told them that they had missed the rapture and that the day of the Lord or God's judgment on the earth had already begun. Put yourself in the Thessalonians' shoes with the fierce persecutions that they were already facing. It would have been easy for them to conclude that they were experiencing God's great tribulation. Remember, today 
is what we call the day of man. For the most part, mankind is having his way. He's getting his say. But God is about to spoil our party. The day is coming when God is going to intervene in the affairs of men. God will have the final say. Daniel 9 speaks of a final seven-year period that will end mankind's rule of planet Earth. God will rain down His wrath on this wicked world. He'll purify His people Israel and usher in His kingdom. And that period, yet future, starting at the rapture and culminating in the kingdom, is the day of the Lord. Yet what scared these Thessalonians was the possibility that they had missed its opening act, the rapture, and that they had been tossed into the great tribulation. In fact, they had even received a letter. Supposedly, it was from Paul that had confirmed their fears. Paul assures them that this letter was a forgery, that they had been duped. Several years ago, I read of a man from Clearwater, Florida, who was getting a kick out of calling 911. Fourteen times in three years, he called in a false emergency. Today, the knucklehead's in the slammer. But when he was arrested, he told the police that he enjoyed watching fire trucks and flashing lights. He got his jollies out of creating panic. There must have been a similar fella in the church at Thessalonica. He enjoyed setting off alarms, false alarms. The church was panicked, but they had no reason to be. Recall the two types of tribulation spoken of in Scripture. Jesus promised his church that in this world you will have tribulation. There is a tribulation that the world brings upon the church. We don't escape that. But the tribulation that comes in the day of the Lord is the wrath of God poured out on an evil world. This is the great tribulation, and from it God will spare his church. As we're promised in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. The rapture is our great escape. And so verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means for that day. And again, what day does he mean? Not the rapture, but the day he just referred to, the day of the Lord. It's the period where God pours out his fierce judgments. It's preceded by the rapture, but it's broader. And this final period will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Now follow the logic that Paul uses to clear up this confusion. If events unfold, A and B, then C, and you haven't seen A and B, then you know that C hasn't happened yet. And thus, before God's day of judgment, there will be a falling away and the man of sin will be revealed. And since the Thessalonians had seen neither, they weren't in the great tribulation and they hadn't missed their great escape. Paul is clear that the next event on their prophetic horizon and on ours is Jesus coming for his church. Here Paul does mention two prophetic landmarks. First is the falling away. The Greek word means departure. It's interpreted by most Bible scholars as a departure from the faith. And Paul here is predicting that an apostasy will plague Christianity. False doctrine will abound. 
That in the last days, believers will no longer rightly divide God's truth. They'll move away from the truths of Scripture and create their own designer religions. Sadly, the church today is barreling towards this apostasy. We see it all around us. The Bible says this is the religion that catapults the Antichrist to power. Revelation 17 envisions it as a spiritual harlot. Yet there's another interesting possibility here, another interpretation for the falling away. Famed Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest points out that the Greek word could also refer to another departure of the church or the rapture itself. That Paul could be saying the day of the Lord won't begin until the church has been snatched away. They know they're not in the great tribulation because the following away or the rapture comes first. And then the second landmark he mentions is that the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. The great tribulation in Daniel 9 begins when a world leader known in Scripture as the man of sin or the Antichrist, makes a covenant or signs a treaty with the nation Israel. Piecing various passages together, the Antichrist will be a leader of a confederacy of ten European nations. He'll expand his power to rule the world. At the midpoint of this great tribulation, he'll violate his agreement with Israel and he'll desecrate their temple. And Paul's point to the Thessalonians is that if he isn't on the scene currently, you know you're not in the great tribulation and haven't missed the rapture. We're told in chapter 2 verse 4 that the Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. This man starts out an atheist, a secularist except when it comes to himself. For at some point, he claims to evolve into the level of a deity and demands for the world to worship him. And Revelation 13 explains how the man of sin garners such influence. We're told he blackmails the world into worship. To buy or sell, a person is required to take his number. It's a mark in the right hand or in the forehead. It's the infamous three numerals, 666. Apparently, the man will use the hardware of electronic exchange, cashless technology, and digital currency may be his tools to extort the world's worship. He'll use some kind of configuration, three digits, 666. You know, it's interesting how many people today get to creeps over the number 666. Recently, I bought a piece of carpet for my living room, and the lady said, that'll be $666. I told the lady I wasn't going to write a check for $666. She said, why don't you just make it out for $665? See, I saved a dollar. But I'm not alone in my creepiness about it. In 1979, Ronald and Nancy Reagan moved to a new home in Los Angeles. Their address was 666 St. Cloud Road. They had it changed to 668. That's what you can do when you're the president of the United States. (laughs) U.S. Route 666 was once known as the Devil's Highway until officials changed the name to U.S. Route 491. No kidding. 
And many moms went to great extremes a few years ago to keep from birthing their babies on June the 6th, 2006. Who wants their baby to have 666 as their birthday? There's actually a term for this fear of the number 666. Exocosio, exaconta, exophobia. That just kind of rolled off my tongue, didn't it? But here's the good news. Christians don't have to be afraid of 666. And this is Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians 2. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Paul is clear that Jesus comes first. Verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? I mean, this is old information, Paul says. They've already been over these truths. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Paul tells us the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Boy, there is a spirit in our age that wants to throw off any God-instituted boundary or law. Today, gender differences are outright denied. Biblical roles for marriage are under assault, as is the very definition of marriage. It's worked for 6,000 years. People today defy natural order in biology to do whatever pleases them. Self-identity trumps biological reality. A real lawlessness is at work today. And if you think it's bad now, just wait until he who restrains is taken away. And who might this restrainer be? I believe it's the Holy Spirit in his church. Not necessarily the Holy Spirit per se, for the Spirit will continue to be around after the rapture. But right now, the Spirit in His church is providing the primary pushback to the lawlessness in our society. We're keeping the devil at bay. And once the church is raptured, it'll be Katie bar the door. Today, the Holy Spirit in His church is all that's holding back the rising tide of evil in the world. Realize it or not, but your love for Jesus, our stand for the truth, is resisting the devil. It's keeping his evil at check. But when the church is gone, the devil will have a heyday. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Once the restrainer is gone, the Antichrist will be free to take control and move his religion to center stage. But he's not in power for long, for he is the one whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Talk about some bad breath. Jesus is going to have some bad breath, brother. With the breath of his mouth, with one glimmer of his glory, the Lord Jesus will vaporize this future world leader. After the British Navy defeated the Spanish Armada in 1588, Admiral Drake asked Queen Elizabeth if she would honor his troops with her presence. He wanted the queen to pass out medals to his admirals. Well, she agreed, but before she arrived, Drake commanded his men, on account of the dazzling loveliness of her majesty, all men, upon receiving their prizes, should, yield, should shield their eyes with their right hand. And thus was born 
the military salute. Here Paul is telling us that the only protection from the searing heat, the glory of Christ, is a salute. Will you submit your life to Jesus? Will you bow to his authority? Will you salute him as your leader? We can either yield to his glory now or be destroyed by it later. Paul adds that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders. Satan's power is real. You remember when Moses turned his rod into a serpent, Pharaoh's magicians duplicated the feet. The Antichrist will be a miracle man. He'll perform wonders, but they'll be lying wonders. God uses miracles to draw men to himself. Satan uses them to sell his lies. Verse 10 highlights the purpose of his lies. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Satan knows he's going down and he wants to take as many people with him as possible. You know, it's sad, but once a person rejects the truth, they'll fall for anything. This means people alive in the great tribulation will be vulnerable to Satan's deceptions. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And notice, this is not just a lie, but the lie. Perhaps this is the very first lie, the lie that upended utopia. Satan convinced Eve that God was holding her back, that he didn't want her to eat the fruit or she would be like him. And this is the ultimate lie, that Satan is the good guy and God is the bad guy, that God is just holding us all back. You've heard it today. Christianity's evil. The Bible is just a way to oppress individual freedoms and keep human beings from reaching their full potential. These kinds of lies, the lie, is still being tossed about. In the last days, God will send this lie on society to consolidate men's rebellion. Verse 12 tells us that they, will all, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And why do people reject the truth? As Paul says, there's pleasure in unrighteousness. You know what that means? It means sin's fun. It tastes good. It feels good. If it didn't, it wouldn't be tempting. Yet in the end, God will condemn those who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. What's stronger, your taste for truth or your taste for sin? Then verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. It's not enough just to hear once and believe. We need to stand fast. We need to hold on to the Scriptures. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us every everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, 
Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. The Thessalonians had been reminded not only of love and faith, but also of their good hope by grace. And then chapter 3, finally, brethren, pray for us. You know, Paul had earlier prayed for the Thessalonians. Now he asked them to return the favor. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. I love the Bible's depictions of the Bible. You know, Jeremiah says the word of God is like a hammer. It hammers home its points. Hebrews tells us it's like a sharp, two-edged sword. Cuts to our motive. The psalmist says it's sweeter than the honeycomb. It brings great encouragement. And here we're told that God's word has 4-2 speed in the 40. It runs swiftly. It spreads quickly. Paul says, pray that the word of God would spread through my ministry. Let's pray in this new year that the word of God would spread swiftly. That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. I love that. The Lord's going to guard us from the evil one. You know, I've been watching too much football. And I see those left tackles, man. Those left tackles, they're guarding that quarterback's blind side. There's people that want to sack them. But they're, they're there. They're, they're blocking. They're guarding. And we've got a left tackle. His name is Jesus Christ who guards us from the sacks of the enemy. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And what a wonderful prayer that is. There's no greater truth than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But so often we wander from that truth, don't we? We stray from his love. Our prayer needs to be, Lord, direct my heart back into your love. Lord, keep bringing me back to your love. Verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. The folks who had caused the confusion in this church needed to be disciplined. And if a wayward believer resists correction, the final remedy is to exclude them from the fellowship. They can no longer be part of the church. So you wake someone up and bring them to repentance by removing the protection of the church family, letting the rebel taste the consequences of their error. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Paul was a pastor, and as a pastor, he had a a right to be compensated by his church. But for the betterment of the body, Paul was willing to forgo those rights. In fact, Paul was bivocational. He worked a secular job. He was a tent maker by day, a pastor by night, and as a result, a burden on no one. He continues, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 
I read about a guy in New York City who enjoys fine food. He just doesn't like to work. And 31 times he's entered an expensive restaurant, eaten fine cuisine, then shrugged his shoulders upon receiving the check and waited for the police to haul him off to jail. 31 times. The police said he actually looks forward to jail time. He gets three square meals a day and a nice place to sleep. Over the last five years, New York taxpayers have shelled out $250,000 to feed, clothe, and house this one lazy man. Now, you may not be able to work. You may be able but can't find a job. In such cases, this church will help you. But if you just don't want to work, then you shouldn't be given a handout. And we won't interfere with the lesson that God in your hungry stomach wants to teach you. Paul is adamant. No loafs for the loafers. Now realize what was going on in this church. Because of their emphasis on the coming of Jesus, there were believers who had decided to sit out life. Why go to school? Why go out and get a job? Let's just wait for the rapture. They were mooching off other believers, and Paul says, stop it. Christian charity should never breed a person's irresponsibility. If you won't work, you don't eat. And then verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. If you don't have a regular job, if you're just idle, you're going to end up sticking your nose in other people's business. That's not good. It's often said idleness is the devil's workshop. You know, the Jewish rabbis used to teach, he who doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. The ancient Romans put it, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. Good, honest work keeps food on a person's table and keeps that person out of trouble. And then verse 12, Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Making a living and doing good to others are the two pursuits that should occupy every Christian's life. Verse 14, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person... And do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And notice the balance there in Paul's command. You know, if a brother persistently disobeys, don't pretend it's all cool. Don't buddy up with that guy and hang out with him like there's nothing wrong. Yet don't completely abandon him either. He's still your brother in Christ. Sit him down. And discuss the issue until the issue gets resolved. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Remember the Thessalonians had been duped by a false alarm. They'd received a letter supposedly from Paul that wasn't. And here he tells them how to authenticate his letters. Check the signature. 
See, Paul dictated his letters, but at the end of each letter, he would take the quill in his hand and he would sign it personally. It was his signature that was the stamp of his letter's authenticity. Verse 18 closes the book of 2 Thessalonians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.